Good mornings, I'm Chris Oaks, and coming up today, did you know that after World War II, nearly half of returning veterans started their own businesses? Today, fewer than 5% do. A new report from the Penn Fed Foundation examines the keys to better supporting veteran entrepreneurs. Also this morning, an officer and an author will meet U.S. Army Command Sergeant Major Johanny Ortega, a native of the Dominican Republic who is breaking barriers both in the military and on bookshelves at the same time. And among the upcoming events at the Findlay Hancock County Public Library in November is the annual Author Fest, supporting local writers in the community. Sarah Clevidence will tell us what's happening. This is the Good Mornings Podcast Edition for Wednesday, October 25th, 2023. Some of the most interesting and buzzworthy stories to get your uh, day started as you are uh, just waking up, maybe hopping in the shower. Do you know how much you spend on your daily morning shower? Uh, a company called QS Supplies looked at electricity and water usage worldwide and determined the annual cost of a hot shower in 89 countries around the world. In the United States, we pay $264 annually just to shower. The cost of a hot shower in one year. That's the cost of the water usage and the cost to heat the water. So $264 annually. I think that's a a wise investment, (laughs) actually. The overall average across all 89 countries is $260, so we are just slightly above that. People in Denmark pay the most at $804 a year. That's a lot. But again, still seems like a pretty good investment, (laughs) even at $800. The lowest cost of a hot shower is in Egypt uh, at just $33 per year. Uh, But dollar amount is not the only factor to consider here. For those who live in Rwanda, a year of hot showers costs almost half the average income there. So I think that says more about the uh, income in places like Rwanda than uh, anything else. Interesting. So uh, did you go to the Halloween parade last night? How did your kids do candy-wise? A lot of candy last night at the uh, Halloween parade. And as National Candy Corn Day looms, uh, which is, uh, that's coming up on Monday, the uh, 30th. Monday is the 30th, right? Because I think Tuesday is the the 31st. Yeah, Monday is the uh, 30th. So that is National Candy Corn Day. A recent survey by Brock's, America's leading candy corn brand, survey reveals that the divisive treat still has a stronghold on American taste buds. According to their survey, 62% of Americans enjoy candy corn as a fall season tradition. Was there any candy corn being handed out last night? Maybe little packets of candy corn? I didn't notice any, but um, let's see here. It says here, candy corn lovers are not just aficionados of sweet treats. They are passionate decorators. 81% of those who love candy corn take their fall and Halloween decorations very seriously. Uh, Parents of kids seem to be especially drawn to candy corn. 50% of uh, parents with kids prefer that over other candies like gummies or lollipops. Uh, Let's see. It seems a lot of people are buying Halloween candy, not just for the trick-or-treaters, but also for themselves. Surprise, surprise. The Halloween, the bags of Halloween candy have been on store shelves for like two months now. They go up like right after the 4th of July. They start putting out the Halloween candy. Is anybody shopping for trick-or-treat candy that far in advance? For Christmas, we shop weeks in advance, but for trick-or-treat... Come on. People are buying that stuff for themselves. No big surprise. Um, 60% of those in the uh, Brock's survey admit to this self-indulgence. However, parents prioritize their kids. 61% purchase candy primarily for the little ones. Which, I don't know. I say we shouldn't do that. Too much candy. It's a bad thing. That's why I always try to have more than my fair share. Because, you know, I wouldn't want to spoil the kids. (laughs) 
The generational divide in candy corn love is intriguing. 69% of millennials say they enjoy candy corn. Um, and then it goes down by generation. Gen X, Gen Z, boomers. Yeah. So just kind of interesting uh, there with the everything you needed to know about candy corn. I mean candy. We come up on uh, on that time. By the way, speaking of Halloween, this is kind of interesting. Ohio is among the best states for vampires, as it turns out. That finding from a study this week released by the lawn care company Lawn Love. Now, I don't know why lawn care company commissioned the survey, but they did probably to get us talking about it. In determining the best and worst cities in America for Dracula and Friends, the folks behind the study considered factors including the number of blood banks, casket suppliers, and average days of sunshine (laughs) in a city, (laughs) which those seem to be uh, reasonable metrics to determine the best cities for vampires. Blood banks, casket suppliers, and average days of sunshine. New York was tops on the list, best city in America for vampires, but the Buckeye State was very well represented. Columbus was number three overall. Number three, third best city in America for vampires. Cleveland ranked 23rd, and Toledo was 29th on the list. So, how about that? Parma, Akron, and Cincinnati all made the top 50 as well. So, Ohio... Very well, very well represented for our vampire friends. <laughs> yes, in case you've uh, ever wondered. Uh, let's see. Of course, after Halloween, we get into the holiday season, Thanksgiving, Christmas, etc., etc., etc. Those big holidays of family gatherings and big meals. And we mentioned that uh, Walmart and Aldi have announced they're rolling back prices in order to make the holiday feast a little more affordable, a little more palatable for your wallet. Well, this is kind of interesting. Uh, I saw this to add to that story. Uh, Apparently, from the 1st of November through the day after Christmas, so for Thanksgiving and Christmas seasons, Walmart customers will be able to choose between two different holiday bundles. So you don't even have to shop for the items individually for your Thanksgiving and Christmas dinner. They will have two different holiday bundles that they will uh, offer. One is ingredient-focused, and the other uh, with easy-to-make items. So whether you want the traditional uh, holiday meal or just something quick and easy, they they will offer a bundle. You just... Click once, and you can purchase everything you need uh, right there on the uh, on the apps. And again, uh, that begins November first at uh, Walmart. That is actually a really good idea. I like I like that. I think that'll go over that'll go over big. And lastly, here among the first things you need to know this morning, the most interesting and buzzworthy stories of the day. This caught my eye because uh, we have just had to uh, go through this in my family. As a matter of fact. Uh, over the course of the past year, my dad passed away and uh, mom passed away many years ago. So uh, we were kind of settling up the estate of uh, my parents, my dad uh, passing away. And um, a recent survey of 2,000 American adults reveals that when it comes to an inheritance, cold hard cash is not at the top of the list. Uh, when it comes to an inheritance... According to the adults uh, in this survey, they would most prefer to inherit property, maybe the family home or something of that nature. Uh, A house or property tops the list 65%. That's what they are most interested in. Uh, Pets actually comes in number two, inheriting a pet, 59%. And then comes money from the estate, the cash value of the estate at 58%. And again, like I said, we've been going through this uh, in our family, my sister and I, trying to divvy up um, the estate. What do we want to keep? What do we want to cash out on? And, and all of that. And it's a, it's a tough process. It really is. But it's interesting 
that uh, property tops the list and money is actually third, pets in between. Over half of the respondents in the survey, 53%, expressed a desire to inherit collectibles or a vehicle. Um, and intriguingly, one in three Americans say they have never pondered the fate of their assets posthumously. I mean, have you ever, have you given much thought to what will happen to all of the things uh, in your estate, all of the things that you own when you pass on? Uh, It turns out that not many of us do think of that. So I don't know, I just something worth considering. Uh, And like I said, it's uh, rather relevant for, for me because we've been going through it in my family and I don't know. One thing about going through that process myself um, gives me a really good idea of how I want to structure <laughs> my estate for my kids when that time comes for my wife and I. But uh, in any event, not to be morbid about it or, or anything, but these are things that we have to think about. So there you go. Some of the most interesting and buzzworthy stories to get your Wednesday morning started. WFIN News. I'm Matt Demchek. Your WTOL 11 weather. Mostly cloudy skies are expected today with a high reaching around 70. Mostly cloudy tonight, a low around 60. The Hancock County Sheriff's Office says a man with an active arrest warrant exited out a second story window in an attempt to elude deputies. It happened at an address in the Dold subdivision in Liberty Township. The Sheriff's Office said when deputies arrived at the address, the man exited a second floor window, jumped off a porch roof, and took off running. After a short foot chase, he was caught and arrested. A deputy and a suspect were treated at Blanchard Valley Hospital for injuries. The Sheriff's Office says a charge of obstructing official business will be pursued against the man, and the original investigation is continuing. The Finley Police Department is reminding parents and kids about some Halloween safety tips as trick-or-treat events approach. Finley Crime Prevention Officer Brian White was on with WFIN's Chris Oaks to discuss Halloween safety. Kids want the fanciest, latest, coolest costumes, but Mm. sometimes they're not really taking safety into account. They might have pieces of the costume they're dragging on the ground, makes it a trip hazard. Might not even be able to see out some of the mask. So make sure that we're buying appropriate costumes. And he reminds drivers to keep an eye out for trick-or-treaters, especially in neighborhoods that don't have many sidewalks. Finley's trick-or-treat is on Saturday from 6 to 8 p.m. Sunday's Cleveland Browns win wasn't the only exciting thing to happen at Lucas Oil Stadium in Indianapolis. Wide receiver David Bell's cousin gave birth there. Tylen Jones had everything planned, but we all know that babies adhered to their own schedule. Jones went into labor during the game and ended up delivering inside the stadium. Medics at Lucas Oil Stadium say they are prepared for any medical emergency, but that was the first baby delivery. This is Jones's third child, and she and baby Kemry are doing great. She adds that being able to have her family together for Bell made Sunday's win even more memorable. Onan's Dave Chadowski reporting. It's Creepy Doll Week at the Hancock Historical Museum. They've brought out some of their creepiest dolls in their collection to get you in the Halloween spirit. You can even vote on which one you think is the creepiest. We have a link in the story on our website. Don't forget, you can always get more news online anytime at WFIN.com. Matt Demchek for 1330 WFIN and 95.5 FM. What is one of the biggest challenges for military veterans, whether you've been in for four years or 40 years, transitioning into a civilian career upon separating from the armed forces? But I thought this was interesting. Did you know that nearly half of returning veterans from World War II started their own businesses? Today, that number is down to less than 5%. Joining us this morning is Andrea McCarran. She is president of the PenFed Foundation and Sergeant Trill Pollan, CEO and founder of Free to Feed, who we'll get to in just a moment. But first, Andrea, I want to start with you. Why? Why the big drop off in the number of veteran entrepreneurs? That's a great question. And one of the key reasons why the PenFed Foundation has really stepped up and embraced veterans and embraced veteran entrepreneurship. Because to be honest, they make outstanding hires. They understand teamwork. They have resilience. They've got grit. Uh, They're wonderful community leaders. And so what we did is just launched a groundbreaking study of the top 20 cities in the United States for veteran entrepreneurs. And this really plays directly to your great question. 
and that is we looked at the local economies, the livability factor, whether there is affordable housing and childcare, good schools, uh, resources for veterans in a community, whether it's VA health care, veterans organizations, you know, things that would help facilitate success as an entrepreneur in any given community. And just so you have it for perspective, our top three cities this year, Raleigh, North Carolina, Austin, Texas, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Hmm. So we should all take a look at some of these cities to see what it is that is making them so attractive for veterans. And what is it? I mean, what is the common denominator in, in what you find? It's really the economy, the local economies, affordable housing, affordable child care, whether there's public transit. And in some cases where, where local governments have incentives, business incentives, hmm. so that veteran entrepreneurs can have the greatest chance of success for their businesses to launch. And, you know, we can all do so much more. You know, it's not enough to thank a veteran for their service. We need to demonstrate our gratitude to these men and women who have put themselves in harm's way through action. And one way to act is by supporting your local veteran-owned and operated business. Absolutely. And uh, that leads us to uh, Sergeant Paul. And let me uh, ask you, talk a little bit about your uh, journey uh, to entrepreneurship. You are an Operation Iraqi Freedom veteran. Uh, and again, as we mentioned, founder and CEO of Free to Feed. So kind of share a little bit of your journey, your story. Absolutely. Thank you so much. When I returned from OIF in 2008, I really wanted to make the most of the opportunities that were afforded to me back in the United States. And so I pursued a PhD in cellular molecular biology. And in my last year of grad school, we also decided to start our family, which I have to say is a very fun time to have a baby while you're also <laughs> sure. trying to write a dissertation and graduate. I'm sure. And what we found is that my oldest daughter was inconsolable. And Eventually, she suffered from many different symptoms that were later found to be food allergies. Hmm. And we were told that she was reactive to specific things that I was eating in my own diet through my breast milk. And that was a huge shock to me because even as a protein expert, that is exactly what I was getting a dissertation in, hmm. is protein analysis. I did not know that things that I consumed could transfer to my breast and elicit an allergic response for my daughter. So I navigated elimination diets and more in that first year of life with her. And it had a very big tax on my physical and mental health. And it wasn't until my second daughter was born and started presenting with very similar symptoms that I started looking around for the research and the resources that I had to have in order to navigate this successfully for the second time. And what I found were lots of other families and very little of the research and the resources that I needed. And that was when I founded Free to Feed. So only a four, few weeks postpartum with our second daughter, I now have what is an army veteran and a scientist trying to start up a biotech company with the goal of creating the very first test system to detect allergens transferred to human milk. And that is where the PenFed Foundation came in. We applied for the master's program and then received that base knowledge that I truly needed to understand how to communicate my leadership skills and my experiences into the business sector, as well as getting direct contact with the network that I really needed to receive not only grant funding for our company, but also investments into free to feed and the partnerships that we would need in order to be successful. And now five years later, we've helped thousands of families and we are very soon to launch the very first test kit to detect allergens in human milk. Wow. Uh, so an incredible success story. What was the biggest challenge uh, that, that you faced in terms of uh, starting your company and getting this off the ground? If you could narrow it down to one, I mean, the biggest of all of the challenges, what would have that have been? If I had to narrow it down to one, I would narrow it down to that network that you truly need to be successful as an entrepreneur. Um, back to the old adage of not what you know, but who you know. Yeah. As I come out of the military, I and as a scientist, I know a lot, uh, but I didn't know very many people yeah. in the entrepreneurship space. 
Um, I know knew no investors and certainly did not know how to properly communicate with them. So to have a foundation where they're bringing in fellow veterans who are navigating the same type of issues as I am um, and to be able to put us in front of and alongside the business leaders, investors, and more in our space was instrumental. So Andrea, uh, Sergeant Pollan referenced the Veteran Entrepreneur Investment Program, the master's program within that. Uh, that's really kind of the the idea behind it to help get these entrepreneurial veterans off the ground, right? Real quickly, explain how this works. Absolutely. We have a highly selective uh, process. And it is, uh, you know, we mentor, we very importantly connect them to potential investors, but we don't just teach them, and then send them on their way. We do follow-up. Like Trill has been working on her business for five years. We've been a great yeah. partner of her for years. And it's just so important that veterans have the support that they deserve. So there are resources that are out there on a national scale. You referenced the uh, study on the best communities for entrepreneurial veterans. What can cities do, large and small, to sort of improve where they stand with respect to that? Well, probably the first step is going to our website, penfedfoundation.org, P-E-N-F-E-D foundation.org, and you can see our top 100 list of cities. And what they do is offer, you know, affordable housing, affordable childcare, public transit, uh, veterans, uh, you know, health care, local veterans organizations, Support for entrepreneurs, just very basic things that will not just attract quality veterans and entrepreneurs, but retain them in the community. So overall, a great quality of life and an entrepreneur-friendly community. And that starts not just with the public on a grassroots level, but with local government who can really provide incentives to veterans and entrepreneurs to move to their area. Because we all would like to uh, improve our standing with respect to this. Again, one more way that we can honor those who have served. Again, Andrea McCarran is president of the PenFed Foundation. Sergeant Trill Pollan, CEO and founder of Free to Feed with us this morning. Ladies, thank you both for taking the time. We appreciate it. Thank you for having us. Well, I tell you what, this is actually the uh, perfect segment, the perfect guest to have on, sort of bridge what we were talking about earlier with respect to those in the military finding success in civilian pursuits. And the topic we're going to be talking about here in just a little bit, which is the annual Author Fest, sponsored by the Findlay Hancock County Public Library, coming up here in a couple of weeks. Going to get details on that. And this uh, actually kind of fits right in between uh, both. And as it happens, uh, the month of October is National Arts and Humanities Month. So that kind of ties in with that as well. Want to introduce you this morning to Command Sergeant Major Johanny Ortega. She is a non-commissioned officer in the U.S. Army who is breaking barriers not only in the military, but also on bookshelves. And I got to tell you, I was surprised to learn that you are both a soldier and a published author. I didn't even know that you could be both of those things at the same time. How did this all come about for you? Yeah, so it came about uh, when I joined the military at the age of 16. My recruiter was like, ah, the golden ticket, right? That kind of took me out of that place where I was not growing and, uh, and put me in a place where I can gain some skills and, and really start to learn how to be a responsible adult. So the Army started my adulthood for me and gave me the skills necessary so that way I can embark on on that passion that I've always wanted to do, which is writing uh, books. So really, that's how I got started. Now, do you consider yourself as someone with two careers or... Is the writing something you think more of like a side hustle that you do for the personal enjoyment as much as anything? I look at it as two careers. I look at it and that's really how I identify it and I talk about it when I, I share this with others. And that is that I have my army career and I have my writing career. And uh, one doesn't compete with the other. Um, I have responsibilities of both mm -hmm. and I just I manage my time. 
at, to accomplish those with utilizing the skills that the Army taught me, really. Well, that's what I was going to ask. How do you balance uh, those two careers? I mean, thinking <laughs> of them uh, both as full-fledged careers, obviously both have uh, quite a few demands on your time and, and, and things of that nature. How do you strike that balance? So I swear by the skills that I learned uh, of being a logistician in the Army, and also bullet journaling. So I, I kind of combined those two, kind of like the pro- project management skills that I learned in the Army, and then bullet journaling, where I just capture everything that needs to accomplish and at what time I'm going to accomplish it, and then just getting after my things one by one. As long as I look at things like that in a one by one when it comes to both aspects of my life, then I accomplish them just like that, and I don't get overwhelmed in the process. Now, uh, I am told that a number of your personal experiences, what's the thing that we always hear, uh, they tell writers, uh, write what you know, and a lot of your experiences, Mm -hmm. uh, both in and out of uniform, have inspired uh, your works. Talk a little bit about those inspirations and some of those experiences that weave their way into your published stories. For sure. I love that phrase, write what you know, and I just have learned so much. So I, I, I grab from my personal life, from where I come from, the Dominican Republic, the culture, the language, uh, the families that I've been part of. And then I also tap into my army experiences and just those, those resiliency stories that I have personally experienced and I have seen from my battle buddies in the army and the places that I've been all of that are things that are pulled on when I'm writing. And those are the things that seep into my writing and in my book. Hmm. Uh, and does that happen? How much of that has, is, is deliberate and how much of it just kind of comes naturally, uh, you know, organically? I, the deliberate part will be when I'm crafting my characters and that um, I want them to be representative of, of my culture, of who I am, because I, I value representation in literature. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the other things really just happen organically as I draft. Um, just the things that I've lived and the emotions that I felt, it, it just, they naturally, for me, right, they just transpire into the writing. So it's a little bit of both um, organically as well as just explicitly yeah. um, that things just transfer into my writing. Yeah. You know, you know, we mentioned uh, that your experience in, uh, is a bit unique as both a published author and a soldier in the Army, but there are, I mean, you are not necessarily alone. There are a lot of uh, other soldiers with similar passions uh, that are pursuing their own interest in the arts in their own way. For sure. There are a lot of creatives in the Army, and um, the more that I talk about it, the more that I find more of us in here. So just recently, I was talking about how I published a book when I was uh, doing a training session with a unit, and a soldier came forward afterwards, and he was like, I'm writing a book. Um, And he wanted to meet with me, so we're going to meet here in a few days. (laughs) That way I can kind of coach him through that. Yeah, it was fantastic. It did, but we also have podcasters in, in the Army, right, that do it either for the Army itself or do it themselves for what they want to pursue. Um, I also work with a photojournalist. That is his, his job in the Army, and mm. he takes photos for my unit, for the brigade, so that way we can use it on social media and for our newsletters. And uh, we have band members as well that I have right. met singers, very talented folks that yeah. are creative in the Army. And and how often does it happen where you speak with uh, one of your fellow soldiers who is kind of inspired by your story that, hey, if she can do it, then I can do it too. And, you know, you serve as sort of a of an inspiration in that way for, for people to go out and kind of spread their wings in that way. I'm hoping that it happens every time I, I meet with my soldiers. I, I do a session <laughs> every week with them. So I'm, I'm hoping that uh, at least one of them gets inspired, inspired to do something. Uh, but it has been quite a few, quite a few moments where people come to me and actually acknowledge in the moment. Yeah. Um, there's other few um, accounts that happen afterwards. They'll send me an email and say, Oh, I I'm doing this because I heard you say this. Mm. Uh, but really as a leader, I just want to in- empower my soldiers to do things. 
you know, and to think outside of the box and accomplish and feel purpose in life. And we should mention, I mean, uh, all of this is just one example of uh, an aspect of service in the military, in the Army, that might surprise people. And again, this is not the only one, but, you know, here's another example of that. Yes, yes. And another thing that is so particular or unique, I would say, about the Army. It's not just the creative side and the people that are very creative, but it's also the diversity and the different cultures that you encounter here. So it's like it really is a microcosm of the society that we're in. And and I love it because it broadens um, our perspective and it helps us learn about other people that we may not have ever met. And all of that really just makes us accomplish these great things that we would have never been able to do by ourselves. So I think that is something that I would like to share that is so unique about the Army. Again, Command uh, Command Sergeant Major Johanny Ortega, non-commissioned officer in the U.S. Army and published author. Where do we get more information? Yes. So for those that want to join me in this Be All That You Can Be moment, you can go to GoArmy.com. And do you have a website for your books uh, as well? I sure do. If you want to learn about me and my books, you can go to haveacupofjoani.com. All right. Thanks very much for uh, taking the time. We uh, certainly appreciate it and certainly continued success on all of your ventures. Thank you so much. You're listening to Good Mornings with Chris Oaks on 1330 WFIN, WFIN.com and 95.5 FM. We interrupt this program to bring you a broken news alert. Okay, I saw this story. Uh, It's not your typical uh, broken news item, but it is kind of interesting. In honor of uh, Halloween, new data uh, has found the most expensive states for funerals in this country. The most expensive state to get buried in Hawaii, where the average funeral cost is $15,203 to get buried in Hawaii. Um, That's number one on the list. California, New York, Oregon, and Massachusetts round out the top five, the most expensive states for funerals. For a cheaper burial, it says here, head to Mississippi, where that same ceremony that costs a little over fifteen grand in Hawaii will set you back just over $6,500 in Mississippi. So, Mississippi, a much more affordable place to die, as it turns out. So, just so you know, in honor of Halloween. As in the uh, broken news, again, kind of a Halloween-themed story, a uh, driver in Washington State with a scary clown dummy passenger pulled over on Interstate 405 uh state patrol state patrol trooper rick johnson said the driver was using the hov lane um the carpool lane which requires a passenger uh and you see these stories in the news from time to time where people try and pull a fast one with a with a dummy in the in the passenger seat where the trooper was able to determine that uh, this uh, Halloween dummy was, in fact, not a real person. It was a a scary clown, sort of like uh, from the movie It, (laughs) was in the passenger seat. Uh, The trooper uh, said, love the Halloween vibe, but it still doesn't count. (laughs) The driver was cited for improperly use of the HOV lane. Mm. In other broken news this morning, kind of a light day, actually, the uh, broken news. Not a whole lot going on here, but I did see this story uh, out of Iowa where a woman who falsely claimed to have cancer and documented her battle against the disease on social media will stay out of prison after a judge gave her probation and a suspended sentence. Madison Russo, age 20, never had cancer or leukemia, and she also claimed, or a football-sized tumor wrapped around her spine. That was her claim on social media. Um, Believe it or not, they uh, set up a GoFundMe, and about 400 people sent in donations to cover her, quote-unquote, medical costs, her non-existent medical costs. Um, 
according to the report, uh, the, the scam unraveled when medical professionals, doctors actually spotted some discrepancies in her story that she was posting online. Um, GoFundMe has already sent refunds to all of the uh, donors. So when doctors saw the discrepancies and questioned it, they reported the, their suspicions to police who subpoenaed her medical records and found she had never been diagnosed with cancer uh, at any medical facility in the area. So she got a 10-year suspended sentence. She was ordered to pay $39,000 in restitution and a $1,300 fine. If she stays out of trouble for three years of her probation, she won't go to jail. She claimed in court, she apologized and claimed in court she made up her story because she hoped her fake cancer battle would force her family to focus on her. Apparently, apparently her family wasn't paying enough attention to her. She basically admitted she just wanted attention. Nice. Uh, this is uh, a rather unusual theft. We have a lot of those in the uh, broken news. Four men in Philadelphia have been charged with stealing over $230,000 worth of dimes. $230,000 in dimes. Um, the alleged heist happened in April as a truck driver pulled into a Walmart parking lot to nap. As he rested, the four suspects took the dimes from his rig. I don't know if he was transporting all of these dimes, this truck driver. I don't know. Anyway, he uh, stopped to rest, as drivers will do. And so these four suspects managed to steal the dimes while he was sleeping from uh, his rig and loaded them into uh, their own trek while he was sleeping. Uh, in the weeks following, the crew reportedly turned the dimes into dollars by using Coinstar machines. <laughs> Must have been a lot of a lot of Coinstar machine transactions. They uh, managed to launder uh, just five thousand dollars in total, according to court documents. Surveillance footage appears to show the group also stealing recycling bins, purportedly to carry the dimes in. <laughs> they not only stole nearly a quarter million dollars worth of dimes, but then they had to steal something to carry it all in. So, <laughs> very unusual. And finally, in the uh, broken news this morning, man, this is not the way you want to start your day. In Hollywood, Florida, a man, his morning bathroom routine took a, took a turn. John Riddle, age 58, encountered an unexpected guest in his bathroom, a hissing iguana. Mr. Riddle... Noticing an open bathroom door leading to his pool area at his home, uh, went in to uh, see if everything was okay, only to come face-to-face with a hissing iguana. Summoning his inner crocodile hunter, uh, Mr. Riddle improvised using a nearby baby gate to contain the beast. He was splashing and hissing at me, Mr. Riddle said. Not exactly an animal enthusiast. He needed to muster up the courage to evict his reptilian friend. But before his heroic efforts could unfold, the iguana made its own grand escape, diving into the swimming pool and then gallivanting into the backyard. The good news is the iguana lived to hiss another day. And Mr. Riddle's bathroom adventures are now legendary. He says, in his neighborhood, among his neighbors. That's all anybody seems to want to talk about. Yeah, that is not what you want to see when you go to the bathroom. Hissing iguana staring back at you. Uh, There you go. Uh, That is uh, today's Broken News. A collection of the odd and unusual side of the headlines. We now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. This is Ed Lance of OSU Extension. 
it's harvest season. Drivers will be sharing roads with combines and grain hauling vehicles. Please be alert, especially on roads with limited visibility. Watch out for equipment pulling in and out of fields. Drivers and farmers, let's work together this fall to keep our roads safe and accident-free. This message from WFIN and 95.5 FM. And now your daily download, the numbers behind the news and the statistics that shape our lives. You remember yesterday we were talking about that survey on friendship in America and the fact that I think it was 72% something along those lines say that they have at least one close friend and older Americans actually are more likely to have a wider circle of friends than do young people. But 72% of Americans say that they have at least one close friend. So why is it that nearly one in four adults say that they are lonely? According to a new survey from Meta and Gallup, um, 24% of people in the survey, ages 15 and over, self-reported feeling very or fairly lonely when asked the simple question, how lonely do you feel? 24% of those 15 and older said very or fairly lonely. Survey also found that the rate of loneliness is highest in young adults, which actually kind of circles back to the survey yesterday that young adults have fewer closer friends than do older adults which i guess makes sense in a in a when you really think about it older adults have uh, obviously more years to build up those solid friendships over time but uh loneliness the rates of loneliness highest in young adults 27% of young adults between the ages of 19 to 29 report feeling either very or fairly lonely. The lowest rates of loneliness found in older adults. And again, not surprising given what we were talking about yesterday, but it does kind of go against the perception that when you get older, uh, you see increasing rates of loneliness. Not necessarily, according to this survey, only 17% of those ages 65 and older reported feeling lonely. Over half of adults age 45 and older reported not feeling lonely at all, while the majority of those younger than 45 answered that they felt at least a little lonely, if not more. Ellen Mayes, I think is how you pronounce her name, she is a senior research consultant with Gallup, said that there is a lot of research pointing to the dangers of loneliness and social isolation among older adults. This survey actually provides a really good reminder that loneliness is not just a problem of aging. It is a problem that can affect everyone at any age. Overall, uh, when they looked globally, and this was not just uh, research involving the United States, but when you look globally, 79 out of the 142 countries where they conducted this survey had a higher self-reported rate of loneliness among women than men, which was also kind of interesting. A higher self-reported rate of loneliness in women as compared to men. A lot there to think about, and uh, just a reminder to reach out to a friend maybe that you haven't spoken to in a while. Chances are pretty good that they'll be happy to hear from you. Lots of stuff going on in the month of November at the Findlay-Hancock County Public Library. Hard to believe. Again, we're talking about November already. Um, but one of the highlights, the annual Author Fest, supporting local writers in the community. Sarah Clevidence is here from the Findlay-Hancock County Public Library to tell us what's happening. Uh, this is coming up, uh, what, not this weekend, next weekend already. Yes. Uh, it's the uh, Autumn Art Walk, and so in conjunction with that, um, you're uh, hosting uh, local authors. Man, there's a bunch of uh, local authors. I didn't realize there were so many published authors here locally. And it's such a wonderful opportunity for them to share their work with our community. It fits yeah. in so well with Art Fest mm-hmm. to celebrate the 
the local written art. Yeah, uh, absolutely. It is definitely an an art form uh, in itself. And I was I was looking through the list of authors, and there are too many to to list them all. But it's on your website, and uh, a lot of children's book authors. uh, But then also. It's such a wide variety. I mean, various genres of traditional novels. There's graphic novels. I mean... It's it's really amazing to see each year at AuthorFest just what a diverse group of authors we have in our community. There mm-hmm. really is something for everyone, even just pulling our local authors together. Yeah. Uh, you've got romance, you've got fantasy, you've got uh, mystery, and, you know, just all kinds of, of different... And many of the authors... Uh, with with published works in multiple disciplines. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. And, you know, it's so fun to get to talk to authors about their work, about their process. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think especially these local authors love that opportunity to connect with our community. Yeah. So it's really a fun evening. And they will have copies of their books. They will available. have copies of their books available. So great time to do a little holiday shopping. There you go. And many of them have new books since last year. They do, so, yes. Yeah. Uh, so uh, some new reading material there from you know some of the uh, authors. I'm I'm guessing that there are some first timers uh, that yes, are there. Yes, every and, year it seems like we've got a few that come back yeah. and a few that are new. And, yeah, and so that's exciting to see as well. So if you've been uh, before, you'll recognize some of the faces, and some of them will be new. But everybody will have new stuff there. Now that is happening next Friday, not this coming Friday, but next Friday. Yes, right? Friday, November third. Okay, uh, and that's not the only thing you'll have going on it's at the time. Not the Friends of the Library's annual book sale be that evening as well actually the the book sale will be going all day friday and and, uh saturday so we're so grateful for our friends willingness to stay open that late uh, Mm -hmm. because they'll start their sale at 10 a.m and yeah and go till eight with author fest but they'll have tremendous deals at their sale as they always do and then van buren high school's uh nightlife acapella group will be performing at the library at 6 p.m that night as well so very good lots happening definitely uh circle that as a stop on the uh, Art Walk uh, event uh, on uh, Friday, November 3rd, uh, to swing by the library and all of that. Uh, let's see here. The Author Fest is uh, right there in the main part of the yes. library, right? Yes, it is. And then the book sales in the Linda Mood room. Right. Okay. So uh, all of that going on. Uh, let's see here. A couple of other things to highlight uh, that are coming up in the uh, month of November. Uh, you have, and I was noticing on the website, you have moved your holds, the area where you have uh, the, the holds, and basically this is all part of uh, sort of a refresh of your space. Yeah, it is. So, so you know, we did our, have been working on our strategic planning. We did the big community surveys uh, in the spring, and, and, you know, something that really struck me as I was reading those results is the library is very beige. <laughs> I've I've worked at the library for 27 years, and it just like, wow, you're right. It is very big. (laughs) Um, So, you know, we've done some space planning work with the state library and with a company that sells some library furnishings. And so um, we're actually going to be getting a new circulation desk. And I I don't have the arrival date yet. We're hoping first quarter of the new year. Okay. Um, But that's a good opportunity for us to paint some spaces, um, to kind of just rearrange what we do in that circulation area. So the holds okay. have come back out like they were pre-COVID. Okay. Um, we'll be moving our circulation workroom to that space where the holds were. Okay. Um, we'll be bringing Read for Life uh, up out of the basement and giving them a spot on the main floor of the library. All right. Um, just moving a couple of offices that are in that area and adding some color to the walls. So we're very excited about that. Uh, 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 Fresh refresh uh, (laughs) for the library that is uh, coming in that. uh, Obviously, so it's one of those pardon our dust sort of things. It is, yes. It's going to be done in in bits and pieces, some by us, some some by some uh, outside expertise. But But the library is going to remain open uh, through this. Yes, I imagine there'll be probably one day where we'll need to close for the actual installation of the circulation desk and okay. we'll let everyone know when that's happening again okay. not before the first quarter of the new year okay uh so you're going to notice some changes uh, over the next uh, several weeks and months as you uh, head to the library by the way uh one of the other things you mentioned uh moving things back to where they were with the holds pre-covid um curbside service was something that you know became a big thing Absolutely. during covid and that is something that is still 
available. Still available. Our our poor little curbside houses. <laughs> the weather got the best of those. And so we had to retire the cute little houses. But our staff are still more than happy to bring your holds out to your car. Okay. So that is still available. So Absolutely. Highlight that. What else is going on with, uh, coming up in the uh, month of November that we want to highlight at the library? Yeah, so we'll have a legal wills clinic at the end of November. Mm. Uh, we're working with the Ohio Justice Bus and Legal, Way, legal Aid of Western Ohio. Uh, so they'll Come provide a legal aid clinic for low-income residents of Hancock County. Uh, so you can have the opportunity to speak privately with an attorney, uh, create your own will, power of attorney, living will. You know, it's really interesting. You, you talk about uh, targeting this uh, specifically to low-income people. That's probably a segment of the population who figures they really don't have much to plan for right. in an estate uh, because we think of estates as being sure, you know, sure. uh, a lot of assets and maybe they don't have uh, many, but you probably have more than you think. Well, you do, and you should always make your wishes known. And, and if yeah. you have children, I think it's especially important right. uh, to have those documents in the right. line. And uh, it, it does a, a great job to simplifying the whole process as someone, and I was mentioning this earlier on the uh, program, somebody who's been through it with my dad just passing mm. away within the last year, uh, it can be very complicated, long, drawn out, even when there is a will. Sure. So imagine without one. It's so. really something you're doing for the, for your family yeah. to make it an easier process for them. Exactly. And that's coming up when? That's November 30th. And you do need to register to get an appointment okay. with that um, by calling the Ohio Justice Bus 614 715 8576. That okay. number and all the information is on our website as well, okay. finleylibrary.org. Very good. Uh, anything else to uh, highlight in the coming month? Well, actually, I think in the coming days, it's <laughs> it's so warm out this week, which is wonderful for story time in the park tomorrow morning at 10 uh-huh. a.m. Okay. And in keeping with Halloween, the theme is monsters. <laughs> okay, very good. It uh, doesn't feel much like Halloween. It but does not. That's actually a good thing for uh, uh, story time in the park. That's very cool. And yeah. that's uh, happening when? That is tomorrow at 10 a.m. and baby story time at the park Friday at 10 a.m. All right, very good. Great weather for that. Uh, we've got a link up on our webpage for more information about everything that's going on at the uh, Findlay Hancock County Public Library. And to mention a lot of things happening, do not forget about Author Fest uh, coming up next Friday. And again, Sarah Clevidence, thanks very much for dropping by. We appreciate it. Thank you. And that will finish up our podcast for today. I want to thank all of our guests for joining us on the program this morning. Remember, you can get more information about all of the topics that we talk about each and every day on the show at our webpage. Check us out online at goodmornings.net. Coming up tomorrow on the program, the upcoming holiday season is not so joyous for those grieving the loss of a loved one, especially to the tragedy of suicide. An upcoming local program can help mourners manage those feelings. We'll learn more. So until tomorrow morning, that is Good Mornings for this morning. Now that you've had a good morning, go on out and make it a good day. We'll catch you back here tomorrow.